0: From the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, starting with verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them, they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: From the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, starting with verse 6. In the name, Lord Jesus Christ. We command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day Laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order for uh, offer in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule: the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Word of the Lord.
2: A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 21, starting with verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign they're about to take place? He replied, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this... They will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdoms that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. The gospel of the Lord. You may, let's say that again. The gospel of the Lord. <laughs> you may be seated. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um As most of you know, um, around here, the scripture readings that we follow each week are from the the lectionary, which is an old um, historic pattern of readings. It's a three year cycle and a three year calendar to where many, many, many churches of most denominations throughout, the world are reading these same texts this morning. And so it's a beautiful way that we connect. But one of the things that, um, one of the things that's interesting about that is that I don't pick out my favorite scripture text to preach on every Sunday. In fact, I am forced, the preacher, whoever's preaching here on Sunday morning, is forced into reading and studying these texts. And it causes us to have to read the whole of Scripture, not just our favorite things over and over again. So there was some uh, there's some things always in the lectionaries, we read them and we go, whoa, that's in the Bible? Like, seriously? And, and hopefully, we're gonna kind of shed some light and discuss some of that today. But first of all, several years ago, Ashley and I were settling here in Nashville. We've been here six years. And a few years ago, we realized we weren't happy with our internet service, okay? And it was uh, expensive, and it wasn't as fast as we wanted to, and they were always hiking our bill. We didn't know about that. They would just change our bill, it would go up, and we had to call them every year and like, negotiate in this weird kind of way to get a better rate. And uh, there was only one company in our apartment complex, so we were just stuck. And then we started to hear proclamations of the good news. The good news that had come to Nashville was that Google Fiber was coming, okay? Google Fiber was setting up their internet service in the city and it was supposedly would be so fast and it would be so cheap, okay? We were told that Google is just better, just better. And it's going to end all of the internet battles forever. Google Fiber set up a booth in our local coffee shop and bought our coffee just for the opportunity of giving us some information about their service in exchange for a measly email address, right? And so we're thinking all will be right with the world, we cried out. Once this service happens, our relatives in the distant lands of Kansas City had told us of the glories of Google Fiber that all would be right with the world and when this happens all things will be possible. And then Google Fiber was delayed and delayed and delayed again. We had been told that since we live right in the middle of downtown, right off of downtown, right in the middle of the city, we'd be among the first to get it. But it turns out it's not that easy. There are contracts to be negotiated, cables to lay, laws to pass. And the promise of Google Fiber didn't come true. Some people have it, I guess, but we never got it. Okay, now this scenario is probably the absolute definition of first world problems, okay, I get that. But it does illustrate (laughs) that the things in this world always let us down. (laughs) There's always a sense of disappointment, this thing that we long for, and then there's something that's just not quite right. Um, One of the radical distinctions about the Christian faith is our hope, the kind of hope that we have as Christians. Christians don't hold on to this vague idea that someday all will kind of be right, that somehow all things will work out and everything's gonna figure itself out. We actually have a hope that is proven and that is sure. The story of the Bible is a story of a God who doesn't give up on his people, who doesn't leave them as they are, This is illustrated in the Exodus story. If you know the Exodus story, God's people are in slavery in Egypt and it says that he hears their cry. They're crying out and he hears them and then God responds and he sends Moses to deliver his people. And he does this through plagues and through confrontations with empire and through crossing a sea and ultimately even with his presence in the desert. But he hears the cries of his people and he responds. This is our God. This is the story of all of scripture. God hears the cry of his people and he responds. And in the New Testament, this hope is illustrated once and for all, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. In a weary, broken world, God steps in that he loves the world so much that he sends his son, Jesus, who dies for us. And not only that, the source of our hope ultimately is that God raises Jesus from the dead. And in light of the resurrection of Jesus, the world's a different place. That if we actually believe in resurrection, this is why we geek out about Easter so much around here, is if we really believe in resurrection, it means that we live in a different kind of world now that something has changed because of resurrection. We live in a world where that kind of thing happens. We live in a world where death is not the end anymore. In a world like this, all kinds of different things are possible. The world has changed. We live in the resurrection country now. Psychologists tell us that most of the fears that we have in life, so if you think about your greatest fears, whatever they are, actually don't do that right now, But (laughs) but if we think about all of our fears in life, all of them are rooted in really one great fear, and it's the fear of death. Um, We fear emptiness, meaninglessness. We fear an ending to our lives without purpose. But resurrection says that death is not the end. It doesn't have the final word. Um, N.T. Wright says, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong into it. So the world has changed. It's a different place because of resurrection. So Christian hope is different and it's sure. Uh, We see hints of resurrection all throughout the Bible. So even in the Old Testament, we see these hints of this day when all will ultimately be put right, when God will respond to his people and the world will be restored. So we see throughout the Bible rumors that death is not the end and that this world, this new world, or this world that God has created now is beautiful and wonderful, but it's broken. And it's not all it was created to be. But there are rumors throughout scripture. There are signposts throughout scripture, if you watch, of a God who won't give up on this world. That this isn't the end. So in our Isaiah passage today, we have this idyllic picture that's painted by the prophet Isaiah of God's world made right. And it's just at the very end of the book of Isaiah. It's after the exile of God's people. And God says through the prophet that he's about to do something new. I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. God says that his people will be a joy. That passage says, he will delight. I will delight in my people. Now, I believe God always delights in his people, that that's his heart, that he delights in us. But if you think about the children of Israel had been in exile, they had been scattered throughout the empire, they had been away from their homeland in foreign cultures, and they had not experienced the delight of God in their lives. Israel had not all, had not seen themselves as the one who God delights in but as the one who had been abandoned by God. That passage also says that in God's new world there will be no weeping or distress. And then there's these like extreme examples of a world made right that are given in Isaiah. It's amazing. In a world where resurrection is possible, where God runs the show, there's all these things that are totally unlikely that in our world now we would go, that's not by the rules. That's not, wouldn't ever work. But in God's new world, they work, they happen. So it says there'll be no more tragedy. God specifically mentions here people who die at a young age. And I know many of your stories, and I know many of you have had friends and family members who have died too young. And God says this won't be the reality in God's new world. It says that someone who died at 100 years old would be considered a youth. How's that for breaking all the laws of aging and everything? It's a completely different world. In addition to these extreme things, there's also some things that we read and we go, okay, well, that just kind of makes sense. That's straightforward. So he says, you will build houses and then you'll inhabit those houses, okay? Sounds right. You will plant vineyards and then you will eat of, those, of the vineyards, okay? We go, that makes sense. That's right. But think about the children of Israel for a minute. In their lives, they had been in slavery and they had found themselves building houses for other people to live in and they would never see the result of that. They'd plant vineyards, but they'd do it because they had to so that other people could reap the crops. God's saying, no, all's gonna be made right in the new world. You will build houses and you will inhabit them. You will eat the fruit that's produced from your work. We still live in a world today of unfair labor practices where wages don't always match the cost of living, do they? The most extreme examples of God's peace in this passage seem to be this illustration, the wolf and the lamb feeding together. The wolf and the lamb feeding together. Wolves eat lambs, okay? (laughs) Or they go after lambs, right? Not in God's new world. It says the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So the lion somehow is no longer a predator anymore in God's new world. I don't know how this works. Not gonna eat animals anymore. He's gonna eat straw. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. Does that mean we'll all be vegetarians in God's new world? I don't know about that. I can't answer that one today. Maybe. But God is saying that the circle of life, cue the Lion King music, right? Will be suspended. The circle of life somehow will be suspended in such a way that predator and prey will not be a thing. Conflict will not be there in the same way that it is now. We think about this in our human relationships no longer will we look at each other and think about what can I get out of that other person? How can I benefit from my relationship with them? How can I get even with them for something that they've done? Not in God's new world. We will see our relationships as God intends them to be. If we read this passage Christocentrically with Jesus in mind, We believe that new creation, this new world that God's creating has begun, has been inaugurated in Jesus. That Jesus embodied the new world of Isaiah 65. Because this new world that God describes where everything's put right, where there's peace, this sounds a lot like what Jesus says when he says, turn the other cheek. When he says, forgive somebody 70 times seven, he's saying, don't play by the rules that you've always played by. Because God is doing a new thing, and this new thing is radically upside down and different, and it's going to require forgiveness and peace and self-sacrifice. We don't see this in its fullness now, but as the church, we get to live God's new world now, that when we follow in the way of Jesus, it's as if we're inaugurating, we're stepping in to this new world that's begun in the resurrection this also means you're no longer defined by previous identities. The children of Israel are no longer defined by their identity as slaves, as those abandoned by God, as the one who God has given up on. We can say to each of us today, you are no longer defined as the one who no one loves, as the one who's not good enough. Whatever the thing is for you, know today God delights in you that God's people are a joy to him. Did you know that God doesn't simply tolerate you? Sometimes we think that, we think God's putting up with me. God delights in you. Every single one of us, God delights in you. And then I think it challenges us, who are the distressed in our world? Who are the people who are crying out? Resurrection says that the new day has dawned. All kinds of things are possible. And in what ways is God inviting us to join him as he responds to people's cries of distress? Our epistle reading today in 2 Thessalonians deal with what do we do in between resurrection, which is this thing that's given us hope, and then this future world where everything we know we see is fully made right. So this new world's been inaugurated in the resurrection we don't see it fully yet. We're gonna see it fully when God remakes new heavens and new earth. What do we do in that in-between time? The communities to which Paul is writing believe Jesus would return any day. So they're kind of sitting around and you notice in the the really early church that they had a hard time establishing structures because they're thinking Jesus is gonna come back this weekend. So why would we create too many structures? (laughs) We'll just kind of wait around and he'll come back. So then they get into this place where a little time passes and they go, what do we do now? What are we supposed to be doing? Um, It's difficult to establish those patterns if you believe God's coming back anytime. In my house, um, I'm a little over the top when it comes to picking up food after we eat or picking up like dishes and kind of leftover food. I'm like, kind of extreme on this, okay? So if food is left out, I'm quickly going to swoop in and take care of it, get it in the sink, rinse it, do all that kind of stuff. I don't like food sitting out. I will always cover food immediately if it's sitting out on the counter or anything. Sometimes I do this before people are finished with it, which is annoying. Now, I wasn't this way in my house growing up when I was a kid, and it was probably because my dad is this way too, Okay, so he immediately picked stuff up, and as a kid, I was the complete opposite. I was always leaving food out, and I was like not cleaning up after myself, leaving bowls in the sink without thinking about it, and an interesting thing happens to me. Whenever I go back to Tulsa, which is where I'm from, I catch myself, because when I'm in my parents' house, if I'm not careful, I fall back into those old patterns, (laughs) and I just kind of leave stuff out and don't actually clean up after myself, okay? Sure enough, my dad comes right behind me every single time and cleans it up, but I shouldn't depend on his willingness to do this. Why do I say this? Well, in any family, there is a tendency to be apathetic at times, to go, these other people are gonna probably do this for me if I don't do it, and so I can just rely on them. And we get apathetic, and um, we rely on others in the household to do the work. Well, the early church, this is the challenge that Paul is facing with the early church, They lived as a family. They lived in such a way that they were dependent on each other, not just for emotional support as we often think about the church today or warm feelings towards each other or help at certain times when we need it, but they were actually dependent on each other for actual real work. And then they were dependent on the needs of the person sitting next to them for financial support as well. In Thessalonica, some of the early Christians had their own houses, they had shops, they had businesses, but they had committed to each other as each person had need. So there's a reason why Paul called the church a family, because this is how a family works. We all pull together, we do the work together, and we share the load. And there had established in this church in Thessalonica a kind of idleness there were some people who had depended on the work of others and they weren't contributing to that work. But Paul says that love for one another always involves working hard and caring for the needs of others, carrying our weight together. And this isn't referring to those within the church who were unable to secure employment or those who had physical limitations. That's not what Paul's talking about. Rather, there appears to be those who would show up at church stuff here and there but never actually settled to do the work of a job. And they just relied on the goodwill of other Christians. So how does Paul deal with this? Well, he deals with it harshly. (laughs) Um, I've never been a pastor in my life who's ever talked about anything like church discipline. Why? Because I think 90% of the time, anytime a church talks about church discipline, it's usually too heavy handed and it's not effective. In fact, a lot of our ministry has been people who had been hurt and abused by other churches in the name of church discipline, and they've looked for refuge and they've looked uh, for safety in another church. But we can't say that there's not something in scripture for corrective, that there's not something like church discipline in scripture. So Paul says (laughs) Paul says this harshly. He says, shun those people who are idle. He says that those who are unwilling to work shouldn't eat. Now that assumes a church that's eating all of their meals together, right? Okay, so this is, I think, addressing a particular problem in this church in Thessalonica. So what do we do with this? This is one of the challenges, I think, when we reach some of these passages in scripture because they're not originally written to us, right? Like they're not written to our community. We're reading someone else's mail, Paul is writing to another community and we get to overhear it, right? So what do we do with this? But we do believe that somehow scripture is the inspired word of God. So it speaks something about God's character and God's nature. What do we do with this? We don't share our resources in the same way that they did. We don't eat all of our meals together. I think the challenge here is in the last verse, this last verse. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right do not be weary in doing what is right. It is so easy in our culture to allow the cares and concerns of this world to keep us from the regular practice of our faith. It's so easy to let it slip through the cracks. But we need the church. We need each other. We can't afford for any of us to become lax. Like a group of dancers in formation, if one person kind of gets relaxed, and gets distracted, the whole group is out of step. Now, of course, this is not saying there are, of course, times for rest from work. The principle of the Sabbath is assumed here. There are times in life where we engage church volunteering and community events more than we do in other times of our life, and that's appropriate. There are legitimate times where we are in need and we need to step back. In fact, that's the whole point here, because if we're not engaged in times where we can be engaged in the life of the community, we're not able to be there for those who do need to step back and those who are struggling, right? This great hope that we have requires living that hope out every day and caring for one another. I think we're in a cultural moment in the life of the church that's really interesting, um, for Christians in the 21st century, I think things are gonna change pretty rapidly. And I think we've seen it already, but we're gonna see it even more so. Like Christians in the 20th century and even so now, it's easy for Christianity to become a cultural thing, for it to be something that's kind of assumed, that it's easy to go about our everyday lives and then kind of add church onto that. Say that I'm a Christian or I have this kind of identity as part of it. Um, It's easy to slip in and slip out, to engage it half-heartedly. It's often so easy to think of the congregation, the church congregation, as another type of thing that we consume in our life. We consume so many other things. Instead of thinking it as a family that we are part of and something that we have responsibility in. In the next generation, I think that's gonna be much harder because church may be seen as something weird. I mean, I, I think it already is. A lot of people I talk to today, when I tell them I'm a pastor, look, like I'm from Mar- look at me like I'm from Mars or something. But, but I do think in the next generation, this is gonna be more challenging. Where it's, you're what? You're a Christian still? <laughs> the Christian community will be smaller and the remnant will need to, by necessity, be fully engaged in the work of the kingdom because that cultural Christianity thing won't exist. The challenge for us is to not become weary in doing good, to hold on to our hope even when things are difficult. In our gospel text, Jesus is walking with his disciples and they're talking about how magnificent Herod's temple is, how beautiful it is, how beautiful the stones are. And Jesus says, yeah, that beautiful temple, one day it's gonna be torn down, it's gonna be gone. And Jesus uses apocalyptic language to describe this. So one day, nation's gonna rise against nation. There's gonna be earthquakes and famines and plagues. This was a time in culture where there was incredible political turmoil. Like things were going nuts. Things were going crazy. I like to think of it this way. Like every morning I make my coffee in this thing called a mocha pot. And it's basically a pressure cooker for coffee. And so the coffee heats up and eventually the pressure is too much and the coffee comes out the top, right? Right? This is kind of what the first century was like. The Jewish people and the Roman empire were in such a pressure cooker. They were so mad at each other that something was about to blow. The Jews wanted to overthrow Rome. The Romans wanted to suppress the Jews. It was just a matter of time. So Jesus, seeing that cultural situation, he says, a time is coming basically when Rome was gonna tear our temple down. It's gonna happen. And we can see from history that it did happen. Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And this was so tough because turning the temple down, tearing the temple down was not just like tearing a church building down in our world today, even though that would be tragic, obviously. But in this world, the temple was the center of culture and economics and life and forgiveness and healing and relationship with God. It all centered on the temple. But... The corruption among God's people had caused the temple to become a place of mixing, mixing um, cultural and national identity with their faith. It had become a place of separation that there were insiders and outsiders to the faith. Jesus is telling his disciples that in the midst of all of this turmoil, the world will see what really lasts that our hope is not in the temple. God is doing a new thing. And Jesus says that in the midst of the turmoil, they will arrest you and they will persecute you. One of the things that we see is that Christians become the source of blame. People begin to remember Jesus as a troublemaker who took Israel away from true holiness and purity. He says, you will be betrayed and you will be hated. And then there's this interesting phrase, but not a hair on your head will perish, but your endurance will gain you souls. I was really confused by this. Um, Some of you will die, Jesus says, but not a hair on your head will perish. How is that possible, right? Jesus is using this hair on your head language to remind them that death is not the end of you, that there's something else that God will never give up on you. Even if you die for your faith, God will not give up on you. He is pointing to resurrection. Death is no longer the ultimate thing to fear. And for us, this is a reminder that anything we put our trust in besides God will let us down, even good things. That if we ultimately put our trust even in something good, that thing will let us down. Money will let us down. Even if we get it, we won't be satisfied. Fame will let us down. There was this really interesting video going around the internet um, a couple weeks ago, and maybe you guys saw this, but it's just fascinating. It was like all the best-selling records and digital downloads from 1979 to the present time. And it was like a chart showing like who was like the highest-grossing person at that time. And it, it's like it gradually changes. And one of the things I saw from this video that was so interesting is how quickly somebody goes from number one on the charts to off the charts, right? And there's a few people like the Beatles and Elvis Presley and Michael Jackson that kind of last on there for a while, (laughs) but most people are off of there really quick. Fame doesn't last. If you spend your whole life chasing fame, even if you get it, it's gonna be fleeting. It shocked me how quickly people move from number one to not on the charts anymore. Fame is fleeting. So money's fleeting, fame is fleeting. Your career or vocational identity will let you down. If your whole life is based on the fact that you're a good salesperson, what happens if you have a bad quarter? You can't put your trust in that. Your politics will let you down. You're going to find holes in your arguments eventually. As we all get older, we find, hey, maybe my, uh, my war political worldview is not really uh, perfect. You'll find out that conservatism or progressivism or libertarianism or nationalism or whatever won't save the world. None of that will. And this is also the reminder that God has us no matter what difficulty may befall us. I believe in miracles. I believe in them surely and securely. I really do. I've seen them in my life. I believe there are times in life where we are headed for disaster or we're even headed for death and God snatches us and saves us. Um, I've told you, you all this story, but when I was four years old, um, I went to the hospital with kidney failure um, and, and was about to die. I was allergic to, I'm allergic to most of the major antibiotics still today, but I was allergic to the necessary antibiotics that they needed to give me. And I, I look back on what the diagnosis was. It was called nephrotic syndrome. And I asked some of the doctors I know today, what's nephrotic syndrome? And can you tell me what it is? It's this disease I had when I was a kid. And they just said, basically meant your kidney died or was dying, (laughs) like, okay. Um, but, But it was this really tragic situation and they didn't give me much chance to live. And miraculously, after mobilizing lots and lots of people to pray, my numbers just changed without explanation. And I was supposed to have this thing my entire life. So he said, even if he makes it through, he's gonna have to be tested regularly and, uh, and he's probably just gonna have this the rest of his life. And also at least half of his siblings will have it. There's a 50% chance that his siblings are gonna have it. Well, not only have I have no sign of this thing, but my siblings have not had it at all. And I can't fully explain this thing. I, I look in my life and I go, I wish there were other things God would have done miraculously, but something happened there and I can't explain it. So I believe in miraculous healing. I believe that God intervenes in ways we can't explain and he heals us. In fact, we pray for that every week. When we pray for you and I hear about a need or a sickness, we pray and actually believe God can heal you. We trust in that. But notice something about miracles. Miracles are never final in this life, okay? Everyone I know who has been miraculously healed has or will eventually die something. The miracles are not the, the end. They don't make everything in life perfect. The power of miracles is they are signposts in the present of what God will do for the whole world in the future, okay? So in miracles, we get a glimpse of the day when God will make everything right of what Isaiah 65 is talking about. In miracles, we go, Lord, thank you for that signpost. Thank you for that thing that points us to that day when everything will be made right. But I also believe in this thing that some call a second miracle. Listen to this. The first miracle would be if we're miraculously healed or if we're in a really tight, awful financial situation and there's a check in the mail, right? Or God suspends the laws of nature in some way, right? We go, that would be called a first miracle, and I believe in those things. But the second miracle is what happens when we find joy and beauty and strength in the midst of difficulty, even when we don't see the first miracle. And in fact, I would argue that the second miracle is much better than the first miracle. Archaeologists discovered these words from a first century Christian martyr. First century Christian martyr said this, in a dark hole, I have found cheerfulness. We think he might've been literally in a dark hole in a prison somewhere. In a dark hole, I have found cheerfulness. In a place of bitterness and death, I have found rest. While others weep, I have found laughter. Where others fear, I have found strength. Who would believe that in a state of misery, I have had great pleasure? That in a lonely corner, I have had a glorious company and in the hardest of bonds, perfect repose. All those things Jesus has granted me. He is with me, comforts me, and fills me with joy. He drives bitterness from me and fills me with strength and consolation. This is somebody who is about to die for his faith or her faith. And he says, in the midst of this, I have found great joy. That's the second miracle. It's somehow remembering that no matter what we face, that God is right there with us that when we suffer, Christ is suffering with us too. And in that, we find rest. And I believe only God can do that. That we can't make ourselves experience that. That's a miracle that God gives us. But if we're busy clinging to our temples, to those other things, to those counterfeit things that we put our hope in, we don't experience that. We have to let go, to trust to allow ourselves to rest in his presence, to live into the new heavens and new earth, to live our lives with vigilance, even when we can't see it. Last thing I wanna close with is Romans 15.3. This is another letter of Paul's and he writes to the, the, the Romans and says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. My hope and my prayer today for us um, is that uh, we'd be able to realize that our hope and our strength is sure, that there is a day when God will make things right. And yet somehow he is working in us now, that as we live lives of faith, hope, and love, we serve one another, as we give our lives for one another, as we turn the other cheek, as we walk the second mile, as we forgive people 70 times seven, that God is present in the midst of all of that and working. And that also in times where things are difficult and we don't see that first miracle, that God's presence is still with us and still reminds us of that great hope. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we do thank you for this hope that we have in you, that, Lord, even as we look to all the systems and the things of our world that we trust in and that they're all limited and they're all fleeting, that there is something deeper that we can rest in, that we can rest in your presence and your goodness. Lord, thank you for not giving up on us. Many of us have had times in our lives where we felt abandoned or we felt forgotten about or we felt rejected. And yet, Lord, you've never given up on us. You've drawn near to us. You're close to us. You breathe life into the dust. So today we cling on to the hope of resurrection and we trust in you here and now. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.